we have obtained an inheritance. Why? Because God wanted you. And that means if He wanted you, He wanted to give to you the rights of what, whatever it is beyond what we know theologically from the Bible right now, the goodness of the gospel and sanctification and grace and all of these things, whatever the fullness of this inheritance is, He wanted to give it to you because you are His child. I'm Kyle Grant, and I'm the lead pastor at Grace Bible Church. You know, biblical preaching is one of the highest priorities of our ministry, and I'm so thankful that you've chosen to listen. If you have any questions about our ministry or would like to know more about Christ, feel free to connect with us at www.gracebibleelkhart.com. Thank you again for spending these moments with us, and I pray that God transforms you by His grace through the Bible. Where we are going to finish this morning, Paul's lengthy sentence in chapter 1, it only took us six weeks, which isn't that bad, honestly. I think you thought after the first few weeks where we were doing one verse at a time that, you know, uh, we were just going to live here forever, which would be a wonderful thing to do, honestly. But we're going to finish this morning with verses 11 to 14. And I'm going to read um, the entirety of the sentence, verses 3 down to 14, so they can really get the whole context. And since we are finishing it this morning, it, it just seems right that we should read it again. Maybe in your study, and because of the time that we have spent preaching it, you have even portions of it memorized. What a blessing that would be. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, in things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. You, of course, know as we have studied it and then reviewed and 
For those of us who have been in it, let's review. And if you're just joining us this morning, I'll recap for you. That verse 1, or verse 3, excuse me, is not actually an an ascription of praise so much as it is a description of God. That when Paul says, blessed be the God and Father, Lord Jesus Christ, he is describing God and the praise that God gets uh, as a result of our worship of him and just by being himself is by being himself. Blessed be the God and Father, Lord Jesus Christ. He is the blessed one. And as a result of His blessedness, He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so the blessings that we see in verses 3 to 14 are essentially expressions of Himself to us. And we have, of course, seen that, and it will, we'll see again this morning, that these blessings are ratified and accomplished through Jesus Christ. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. In Him we have redemption, verse 7, through His blood, that is the blood of Jesus. Verse 8, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ. And so this is a passage that is about the blessedness of God expressing His blessings toward us. These blessings are ratified and accomplished through the work of Jesus Christ. And if you remember back when we introduced the passage, I guess it would be about eight or nine weeks ago now, seven or eight weeks ago, I said that it is a Trinitarian passage. It deals with each, each member of God's person, God the Father, God the, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We have, of course, seen the work of God the Father. We have, of course, seen its ratifying work in Jesus Christ. And in verses 11 to 14, we will see the work of the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. This is a passage about God in His working, in His blessing. And it's been a wonderful, powerful first mountain to hike as we take this hike through Ephesians. And so our direct passage this morning is what I just read in verses 11 to 14. And this will be the weight of our study this morning. In preparation for this study, I was reminded of something in my life as a parent. And those of you who are parents know what I'm talking about, and if you're not yet, you will. And if you aren't a parent but were a child at one point, you will also understand where I'm going with this. And this particular thing that I reflected on this week is the importance in your life as a parent and in the the life of your child of having markers that are not permanent. You say, that was a weird way to say that. All right, non-permanent markers are very important. Because you all know, I'm sure this has happened at some point in your home. This happened to us a few months ago. One of my children, the one who's more artistically inclined, comes running to me 
and says, Daddy, something happened. One of the, some of the worst words you can hear from your children. And it was immediately followed by an apology. And so, of course, I walk into the bathroom, and there are markers. Or there are markers on the floor, and there is marking on the door. And this is not an uncommon experience in your household. One of the children begins to take a writing utensil and uses it where it is not supposed to be used. Fortunately, that marker was not permanent, and the little Mr. Clean magic eraser got it right off. What happened, what would have happened if it were a Sharpie? I mean, I guess I'm pulling paint out of the basement and repainting the door and making my daughter do it, or at least help me. That might be more messy, actually. You say, why this introduction? Because in reflecting on this passage, I was reminded of another writing in the Bible, a writing that actually parallels with this passage because it's something that was written before the foundations of the world, before our reality came into being. And it's the writing of the names of the children of God in the Lamb's book. Question, what happens if that ink is impermanent? Actually, it's something that many of you may have struggled with. Can I lose my salvation? What if I'm not really saved? I don't feel saved. This morning, I want you to see from this passage about our salvation and God's blessedness that as you understand that this is a passage that is about the praise of God, we've seen it repeatedly, we'll see it again this morning, that we see through the Holy Spirit and know through the Holy Spirit that that ink cannot be erased and that the permanence of our redemption is purposed in praise. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. I want you to see in verse 11, first of all, God's purposeful possession. God's purposeful possession. In Him, that is God, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined. Now, you wouldn't know it because of what I think is a strength of English translation here, but actually the word obtained and inheritance is a a difficult thing to come to in the English language because the original word is very complex. It's it's actually a a compound idea. It's, It's one word if you look at the original language, and it can be relatively challenging to figure out where Paul is going, which is why, of course, language helps us, or context helps us. We understand when we read the Bible, we need both a good language and a good understanding of the context. And so this, this inheritance, this idea of inheritance, isn't actually explicit in the passage. It's implicit according to the context. And 
and I think it's a very good translation if you have, some, if you have a translation that reads something about an inheritance. Because the passage does talk, to, or the word does mean some sort of portion that is allotted to us. That's the most basic definition of the word, the meaning obtained and inheritance here. Something that is obtained by lot or something that is apportioned. But the word is in the passive here, which means that it has been done on our behalf. So, so, so the allotting or the apportioning has been done for us. It's not something we've done ourselves. We ourselves did not get this inheritance of our own claim or of our own accord or of, uh, of, of any sort of earning of our goodwill. But it's been something that was apportioned for us. And this logic is, it really continues what we see in verses 5 through 7, which remember is this coupling of redemption and adoption. We have been predestined, we have been redeemed, and we have been adopted, these blessings of God. And so first of all, verse 11 deals with our allotted privileges, our allotted privileges, the blessings or the privileges of God, the inheritance of God that He has allotted to us. Remember, I, I just mentioned that this makes perfect sense within context if you look at verses 5 through 7 because adoption really relies on redemption because it's because of the working of God that we're bought out of sin, which pays the price for our adoption as His child. We talked about that several weeks ago. That, that by the payment of Christ's blood, remember the adoption has been accomplished through His blood, that by the payment of Christ's blood, we are redeemed out of the slave market of sin and being bought out of the slave market of sin, which means, means we are then eligible for adoption in which we receive all the rights of, of being God's children. And that includes then this apportioning of inheritance. If we are God's family, furthermore, or to an even greater extent, if we are joint heirs with Christ, Romans 8, there is given for us both current and future allotted privileges. For example, our current privileges is union to the Father, forgiveness of sin, sanctification away from sin. Everything that we've read are the blessings of God in this text. Now let's just back up and make sure we understand where we're going here. Make sure we understand where we've been. And I'll say it like I said it when we talked about the election of God and the predestination of God. None of you deserves to be here. None of you did something good enough to get here. None of us are attractive enough, rich enough, talented enough. Or whatever the world thinks is valuable. We are here by the electing work, the predestining work of God. The election and predestination to adoption as sons. So not only should we not be here, we certainly should not be children. Because we don't have any rights as sinners. But through this working of God, we not only receive salvation, we receive an inheritance through that adoption. 
And of course, we talked about when we talked about the reality of, ado- of adoption, the reality that you only receive these benefits when the Father dies, but God the Father never dies, which means the benefits of God are eternal. Our inheritance, though, is fully obtained upon our death. You say, well, what is this inheritance? I don't know the fullness of this future inheritance. Of course, we can talk about the crowns that we receive and all those things, but I actually don't think those are a part of this inheritance because we'll return those. There's this spiritual reward, the, com- the completion of our redemption of our bodies. And of course, whatever Peter means when he says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us, as we read, to be born to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. You say, where is the fullness of my inheritance? It's up there. And it's way better than what's here. It's kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So the, the salvation of our, of our souls now but the not yet full redemption of the creation and the not yet full redemption of our bodies. What God will do once and for all in the end. We have obtained an inheritance. Why? Because God wanted you. And that means if He wanted you, He wanted to give to you the rights of what, whatever it is beyond what we know theologically from the Bible right now The goodness of the gospel and sanctification and grace and all of these things, whatever the fullness of this inheritance is, He wanted to give it to you because you are His child. And you want to talk about what happens if my name can be erased? What does it say? God is keeping the inheritance guarded for you. 1 Peter chapter 1. Which leads us then... His purposeful, or his, his allotted privileges that he has allotted to his people by, by no goodness of ours, but goodness and grace of his, leads us to then the benefactors of his goodness. Of course, God's appointed people. This word predestined has the idea of appointing, marking out before. This is a reiteration of verse 5. It actually sounds very similar to verse 5 if you read verse 5. Uh, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Then you look at me, verse 11, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So this reiteration is inclusive inclusive of both the doctrine of predestination, which he's already mentioned in verse 5, and his sovereign purpose, which he's mentioned in verse 5. Why did God do this? Because he wanted to. That's one of the simple glories of the Bible. Simple yet majestic, cosmic, unbelievable glories of the Bible. Why did God do this? By this I mean want you to the extent that he would send his son to accomplish your adoption. Why did he do this? Because God does what he wants. 
And that means He wants you. Remember, He knows who will be His because He already made this, this marking out terminology. And this will make even greater sense in, in light of verse 14, which we'll talk about in just a few moments. God has a people marked out for Himself, and He has marked that people with Himself. This predestination is a specific and important background like verse 5 did, which I think Paul notes in verse 12, and we'll get there in just a moment. But before we move on, I just want to make sure we pause and reflect worshipfully on where we are on what we've discussed. Because some of you, I mean, honestly, I should get really practical here. And when I say some of you, I don't mean it like judgmentally, okay? Uh, some of you didn't want to come to church this morning. Like it was, a, it was a labor to get here. And some of you are starting to nod your heads. I understand. Some of you don't want to take the extra 30 minutes that you have to get up before work to read your Bibles. Some of you have quit praying or memorizing Scripture because it's too hard. Again, when I say some of you, I, I'm not saying judgmentally. I'm just using it for sake of the, the phrase because I, I think it describes some of you. And listen, I, I've been tempted by these things myself. I'm not like, I'm not like super Christian up here. I don't, and I think anyone pretending to be super Christian clearly isn't. But God chose you for Himself. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters out of the slave market of sin, willingly shedding His Son's blood and the Son willingly obeying. The shock and awe and majesty of this reality should motivate you to accomplish whatever spiritual discipline you believe is too much for you. Because why wouldn't you? God has a plan from eternity past to accomplish your salvation and make you his own, and you can't give him 20 minutes? Your Sundays are too important? Like that's your rest day? That's not what God mean, meant when he said Sunday's a day of rest. I think when we fail to accomplish basic Christian responsibility, Basic Christian obedience, it is because we've lost a beautiful reflection and glory for the profound basics of what got us here in the first place. Because if we started every day just taking a step back, drinking our coffee, waking up and saying, I don't know why I'm God's child today, but I'm going to do my best to please Him, I think, I think we would live differently I mentioned just a moment ago that verse 5 has a specific context when we talk about predestination and election. 
And by specific, I mean Old Testament. Because as we understand that there was a selection of God's people in the Old Testament Israel, so it somewhat evidences for us the way that He will work in the New Testament. It's not, an, it's, not an, it's not an exact, in my opinion. The two things aren't completely equal, but at least gives us uh, an example or a basic understanding of how God chooses a people to Himself. So first of all, God's purposeful possession, and secondly, I want to show you in verse 12, God's prior possession. God's prior possession. When I say prior, I just mean chronologically, okay? Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Now, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of ideas about what verse 12 means. Verse 12 actually is a very complex passage. It's very difficult to know exactly what Paul means. I think, though, that there's a pattern that Paul sets throughout even the book of Ephesians when he talks about the, the blessings of what it means to be brought in as Gentiles. And I think that's probably what he's getting at here. That's the majority, it's the majority uh, uh, view of the passage, and I think it's probably the best one. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. This word first actually has the idea of set point in time, so it is a chronological idea of first. And if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 14, it's very clear from the Old Testament that were, there were those who were the first of the people of God. Deuteronomy 14 verse 2, for you are a people holy to the Lord, your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So of course this helps us understand God's selection of the people Israel. Now, there, there's a logical response if you say that verse 12 is referring to first being about Israel and then going to the Gentiles. There's a logical response, and it's, it, and it's this. Um, especially since we've just studied the Gospel of John, question, did most Jews believe in Christ? No, most of them did not. Okay? You say, well, then I can't be talking about Israel. I actually think that it is. For even if you think about the chronology of the book of Acts, how does the church start? Jerusalem. Or where does the church start? Jerusalem. How does the church start? Pentecost. Who is Peter preaching to? Largely Jews. Which is why he preaches a Jewish message to them about how Jesus was the Messiah that David talked about. But this is not the only evidence for this. Paul talks about this a great deal, especially in the book of Romans. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God and salvation to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Chapter 2, verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. So I think what Paul was talking about, verse 12, is the people of Israel, the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. And then he's going to transfer in verse in verse, uh, in verse, 12, verse 13, in him you also when you heard the word of truth. So I think he's talking about his possession of the people Israel. You say, why is that so significant to me? Well, you'll especially see it more clearly in chapter 2 because that's largely the, the, what the latter part of chapter 2 is about. The incredible mystery that God would bring Gentiles into his people as well. But the, 
the, the beauty and the glory of this is in verse 12, so that we who were the first hope of Christ might be to the praise of his glory. What does the salvation of the Jews accomplish? The glory of God. And what does the salvation of the Gentiles accomplish? Verse 14, the praise of his glory, the glory of God. What does salvation accomplish? The glory of God. Or it should in your own heart and your own life. How often do you actually recount the gospel to yourself? How impactful is the gospel of Jesus Christ every single day to you? Or did you get saved and you're holding on to your your heaven ticket and you're good to go now? And you can think about Jesus when, when life's tough and when it's not, well, you really need to get back to church because life's tough. But you still got your Jesus ticket, and you can still live selfishly, and you can still impose your will on other people, and you can still do what you want, and you, and you can be miserable, but you got your Jesus ticket. And there's no thanksgiving, there's no reveling in the gospel, there's no cherishing Jesus Christ, and it shows because you don't have any joy. You know what I think's happened? You're not saved. Because those who are gods at least have an inkling, at least understand, they should be thankful. The gospel should affect their lives. The gospel gives them joy. Not, I'm not saying perfect. I'm just saying you actually live like someone who's been affected by the gospel. If you're not affected by the gospel, you probably haven't been. Because those who are gods bear the mark of those who are gods. You say, well, that's harsh. Well, look with me at verse, uh, verse 13 then. In him you also, when you heard the word of his salvation, heard the, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Those who are gods bear the mark of those who are gods. So thirdly, the permanence of our portion. The permanence of our portion. Our portion obviously being this, these allotted, this allotted inheritance we've already mentioned. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, this is the good news, the basic, this is the, the, the basic word for the good news of the gospel, and believed in him. Uh, back when we talked about election, I made, a, I, I made a point to point out here in verse 13, God's election does not negate man's res- accountability. You have to believe the gospel, which is why we preach the gospel, because people need to believe. And believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So now let's go back to our question, can your name be erased? I want to show you two things in answer to that question. That first of all, the permanence, the permanence of our portion requires submission to the gospel. Requires submission to the gospel. And this is where I get the this is where why I point out the idea of belief, of human accountability. If you've not submitted to the gospel of Jesus Christ, then there's no permanence for you. There's no salvation for you. 
You have to come to God God's way. And there is no way to God except through Jesus Christ, who's the way, the truth, and the life. So there's no God and. There's no Jesus and Buddha. God and morality. There's God, His way, and His word assures His salvation. So have you submitted the gospel today? You say, well, what does that mean? Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus died and was raised, then you will be saved. Verse 13, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now that word confess is very important. It means to agree. So confession of our salvation means to agree with God. What do you have to agree with God about? That you are a sinner and that you cannot save yourself. That means you have to see sin God's way. It's unholy and it separates you from him. And you don't deserve to come to him except through the shed blood and sufficient work of Jesus Christ. So you come to God God's way. It requires submission to the gospel. You can, be in your, you can be in church your entire life and never have done that. Prayed a prayer a long time ago because you, whatever, life was tough, you wanted to get through something, and you never submitted to Jesus Christ. You just wanted something to fix your life, and you thought Jesus would do that, and now he's not, and it's his problem. And this wasn't the life you signed up for when you became a Christian. But you didn't agree with God about your sin. See why this is so important? That we come to God God's way. That we submit to the gospel the way that God means it. So it requires submission to the gospel, but secondly, it's ratified and sealed by God's Spirit. It's confirmed and sealed by God's Spirit. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This word sealing has both the idea of security and of identity. You have to think this time in culture, they didn't have envelopes that they could lick and then stick together and send in the mail. It's pretty common to have some wax that you'd put on something that you wanted to bind, like a parchment or a scroll, and you'd send it with a messenger. And when that parchment or scroll got to where it was supposed to go and the seal was broken, do you know what that meant? Somebody was mail snooping. Or... They wanted whatever was inside of it. And if you were really important, you could send a seal that actually had your signet on it, which is why we have, like, we have, I mean, abundance of historical Roman, Greek, Jewish 
signets. Because it's how you identified yourself. It's a symbol of security. If it's tampered with, something's wrong. And it's a symbol of identity. You know where it came from. You know who it belongs to. Occasionally, I will write notes to people in the congregation. Just say, I'm praying for you. Maybe you lost somebody. Or sometimes just to tell you, I'm praying for you that day. You say, I haven't got one yet. Well, be patient, okay? And because I'm really old school and I like really weird things, I, actually, I have a wax seal and I do a wax seal. Some of you are nodding because you've gotten this. And it has a G on it. Why? Because it's my last name. Now, I suppose if you really wanted to think it was from Gary, you could. But you know it's not. Their seals were much more specific than just a letter of their name. But you know what I'm talking about because you've gotten this note and it's got the seal and you have to break it so you can get what's inside of it. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That means you were secured. And that means you now bear the mark of God. Did you hear what I just said? You were secured and you bear the mark of God. The problem is some of us are having a little bit of an identity crisis. Where theologically we have believed, and this really has happened to us, and we do bear the mark of God, but we also really like to flirt with the world. Like I think it's fun to try this and fun to try that, and we actually start to bear the mark of what's temporal, what doesn't last, and we start to sound like and smell like and look like the world and sin that God saved us from. And what people see in you and about you is that. Not that you bear God's mark. Because you've confused them by your living. Are you imitating and bearing the imitating God and bearing the mark of God in such a way that they have truth about God settled in their heart and mind because of you? Or are you just adding confusion to the question of their hearts? Because you claim God, but don't live like it. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. That is, you are secured by Him and you bear the mark of God. Sealed, it was sealed and promised. This is the promised Holy Spirit. Of course, Joel talks about it in chapter 2. And it shall come to pass afterward, I will pour out, on my spirit all, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Again, in our series in John, we talk about this a good deal, especially in the upper room. John chapter 14, this is, of course, he talks about it in chapter 14, 15, and chapter 16. But chapter 14 is where he deals with it most extensively. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. 
So those of you who are really fearful because, I mean, this is children, this is teenagers, this is adults. There's no age limit on this. Those of you who are really fearful because you think maybe you're going to do something one more time and you slipped again and you did this again and you hate when you do this sin and, and so God says, all right, time to get the white out. Time to get the eraser. And you who are really fearful that God's going to take your name out. If you're God's and you've submitted to the gospel, You need not fear because God will not remove that mark. Now, it does require that you live that out, that you bear the the living and the image of Jesus Christ. But don't fear. That which God has promised, He will not remove. That which God has secured will not falter. Your salvation will is kept and guarded as is your inheritance. And finally, to conclude the, the message and the, the, the sentence, this text, why all of this? Sealed it with, with the promised Holy Spirit, verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. He is the guarantee of our inheritance. He has secured that inheritance until we acquire possession of it. This, again, is another difficult word, but actually, in its most basic sense, it has the idea of two parties coming to a final payment. This word is really not used often. It's used once in the New Testament, and it's it's seen throughout the, it's seen twice in the Old Testament. Coincidentally, it is actually used in modern Greek, not ancient Greek. The word has been sustained into modern Greek, and it has the, it's, it's the word that's used for an engagement ring. Something that is given you that means that once you get it, there is more to be given. When you receive an engagement ring, it's not final, is it? And so you're eventually going to get that wedding band. And so this acquired possession is like, it's this final thing that there's, you're still getting it. It's still this, 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 it's still this sign that it's not been finalized yet and that there's still goodness to come because we have not yet acquired possession, but we will. And so the Holy Spirit is your security. He has sealed you and He is your ongoing sign that still something better is yet to come. Why? Why all of this? Why the blessings of God? Why would God express His nature? Well, you've seen it. Chapter 1, uh, one verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace. Verse 12, we might be to the praise of His glory. Verse 14, to the praise of His glory. All of this that we get to be benefactors of, the blessings that we're, it's all about God. I mean, this is, this is all about Him. Listen, that means, this is really important, okay? You're one of the fundamental applications, one of the most basic low-hanging fruit meanings of verses 3 to 14. You know what it is? Your salvation is not about you. 
Did you hear what I just said? Your salvation is not about you. Now you get to receive it and you get to enjoy it, but your salvation, the blessing, it's about him because it results in his worship and his praise. And it's caused something like this where people come together who've all been impacted by the gospel, who've submitted to the gospel, who've been redeemed, who've been adopted because we're chosen him and we come together and say to the praise of his glorious grace. Hey, why are you here to the praise of his glory? Why are you here to the praise of his glory? Hey, you're visiting with us today. Why are you? Well, I'm here to worship God because that's what we do. Because my salvation's about him. This frees us from any self-centered view of salvation that I can get saved and then I can't have. That I'll come to God because God promises lots of good things for me. That maybe if I put a little in, I'll get a little out. Your salvation is about God. And right now, we live this glory out, but it has not yet fully been realized. And one day, brother and sister, I will see you in the age to come. And we will remind ourselves of why we're there. Do you know why we'll be there? For the same purpose that we are here, God. 